Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our sermon lesson for this morning comes from Luke chapter 16. I want to invite you to not only follow along on your Bibles or your devices or the screen behind me to it, but keep a finger in your device or on your Bible there, because we are going to refer to this section of God's Word. We're going to walk through it throughout our sermon this morning. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed in, into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the gospel of our Lord. The TV show Suits is a 
law drama that follows the experiences, the ups and downs of a high-powered New York City law firm. And what's fascinating about the show is it not only follows the, the really complex lives of the firm's lawyers as they look to grab money and power from other law firms, from other corporations in New York City, but also as they wrestle one another for power and money. It's what makes the show so fascinating. And, and really, each episode or, or really the whole season or a scenario can really follow the same outline. Here's what happens in the show if you're not familiar. First, what occurs is that a senior lawyer does something to a more junior lawyer, maybe gives them an impossible task. There's a power move from the top down. And then what happens is the junior lawyer or the one who received the impossible case, let's say, there's no way to win it, they get upset understandably. Maybe they even get angry. They threaten that they're going to quit their job. Or maybe they get threatened that if they don't win this case, they're going to lose their job. But there's anger involved. Then what takes place is some dramatic reflection. Usually it takes place with a shot of a lawyer peering out some window on the 44th floor of a New York high rise, but they have a light bulb moment the junior lawyer knows how they're going to win the case, how they're going to win the day, but there's a catch. There's always a catch, and it's usually that this, this junior lawyer is going to, going to win in a way that does not make the senior lawyer who gave them this impossible task very happy at all. And then it happens. Then the senior lawyer is angry. It, they are upset that they won the case or they did something to benefit the firm, but they did it in a shady way, an immoral way, an illegal way, or maybe a way that, you know, kind of fringes on the gray areas. But then the senior lawyer has a light bulb moment. They realize that, well, after all, they won. They benefited the firm. And, well, they can't stay mad at them very long. But that's when it really hits. That's when you see both the audience at home and the characters on the screen realize that the power, the money, the anger, that's not really what this was all about. There's a moral to the story. Amid all of maybe the immoral actions, there's... There's a lesson to be learned here, a lesson about loyalty or friendship, a lesson about values like integrity and family, a lesson about friendship and maybe sacrifice. If you're asking me, I'm pretty sure that the writers to the hit TV drama Suits plagiarized Jesus Christ and this parable. I mean, it follows the exact outline. What you have is a rich man who, for all intents and purposes, really made a power move. He, he brought in his manager who was managing poorly and just fires him. And maybe he was in an impossible situation. Maybe it was really that he was just lazy and not good at his job. But then, understandably, he's angry. He's wondering, what should I do about this situation that I find myself in? then it hits. A light bulb moment. 
He knows exactly what he's going to do. And you heard it read just a moment ago. Of course, that's not going to make the master very happy. And yet, what do we see? A light bulb moment takes place for the rich man, the master. He commends him. He commends the dishonest manager for what he did to win the day, to make good out of bad. And of course, there's a moral here. Amidst all the details of the parable that we just read, there is a lesson that Jesus wants to teach us that transcends the unethical, immoral, the dishonest workings of the manager. What's that lesson? Did you catch it? Well, that's what we're going to get into today as we walk through this fascinating parable. Jesus was telling this, note this, to his disciples. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Why did he get fired? What did he do? Notice this. Jesus doesn't waste time with the details. He brings them in and tells them, turn over your books, pack your bags, you're fired. It's time to go. Whatever the case was, what we know is this. He wasn't maximizing the possessions that he was given. He was wasting them. And here, right off the bat, there's maybe a sub-theme that you and I need to pick up, and it, and it starts with understanding who the characters in this parable are. The rich man is undoubtedly our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who we read in 1 Timothy before was described as the King of kings and the ruler of all. He's given us everything. And, and we, the, the managers, are, well, in the position of this steward. We have received everything from God and it's up to us to, to steward it, to use it all for his glory, for service to others. And so right off the bat, we're forced to wrestle with the question, are we maximizing that which God has given us or are we wasting it? Here's maybe a, a different way to think about that very same question. In scripture, it talks about a tithe. It talks about giving back to God 10% of that which he has given to us. And in the New Testament, Christians aren't demanded that you must give a tithe. Instead, what God says about giving back to him is that it should be a priority. It should be first fruits that we set aside to him. And that our giving should be done not out of compulsion or out of threat, but it should be motivated by all that the creator, our Lord and Savior, has given to us. And thirdly, it isn't about amounts. It's about the attitude of the heart. It's not about a percentage or so. It's about why you're doing it. Why this 10%? Why does it get talked about in Scripture? Well, because Scripture makes it clear that this is a, a way for you to kind of see the path that you are on in terms of your financial stewardship. It's a road sign pointing to this is what healthy stewardship looks like. And so this scenario was, was posed to me to get me to think about, well, are you a good steward of all your master's possessions. 
Imagine this. Imagine an employer, a company, or an investor gives you 100% of their possessions and says, have at it. You can do with these things, these resources, whatever you want. But at the end of the year, you need to give me 10%. Oh, but you get to keep 90% of what is mine for yourself. And then I'm going to do the same thing the next year and the next and the next you heard about a company like that, an investor or an employee like that, there is not a man or woman in here today that would sign right up to work for them. They give you 100%. You get to end up just keeping 90%. Unquestionably, we would love that. And yet think about when it comes to our God who does the very same thing. Oftentimes, we look at that and we think, God, that is an impossible thing you're asking. That is way too difficult for me to do for you. And then we shoot the messenger. When a pastor wants to go and talk about stewardship and giving back to God, we think, well, he's the greedy one. No, the point is this, that to look that God has given us everything that, that is his, he's put us in a position to, to be stewards of his household, And all that he asks is that we give back out of thanks and praise to him. And do we do it perfectly all the time? Well, I think you and I both know the answer is no, but catch this. Our master, our savior, he doesn't fire us. His mercy's more. And that's why we're going to keep reading. (laughs) The manager who did get canned, he said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their house. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. What does the manager do? He dramatically reflects on his situation. I'm too weak to dig. I'm too proud to beg. What'll I do? He has a light bulb moment. He calls in each one of his master's clients and he settles their accounts. He just goes on and and makes massive deals. He uses what little time he has left in his position and what little power and authority he has to do what he does, and he gets after it. And there's two things we need to catch here. How many of you deal in olive oil and bushels of wheat in your day-to-day lives? Not many. So what does this mean that he was cutting these deals in half? How much did that come out to? Well, let's not get bogged down in the details, but it's, it's enough to know this. These were massive deals. There was tons of money exchanging hands here. This wasn't just a little bit of a you know, discount or a coupon. Here, go have at it. No, these were huge deals that he was giving these people. And why? This is the second thing we need to know. Can't move on till we catch this. It's so that when he loses his job, he makes friends. He makes friends that will welcome him into their home when he has nothing. 
consider how we use what we have and also the time that we have to use it. You do know that you won't live forever, right? And you do know that the things that you hold dear, when you're gone, somebody else will hold them, right? So how does that affect the way we use those things right now? The manager still got fired. He still got let go by the rich man. And yet notice this, he has a ton of friends. Everybody likes him. He knows that because of what he did with the time that he had and the little resources that he had left, he was going to be all right. Except for his master, of course, right? Well, notice how Jesus wraps up this parable. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Notice, he calls him dishonest. Jesus doesn't say what he did was perfectly ethical or legal. No, he says he was dishonest. He was bad at his job. He did something wrong. And yet, what does the master in the story do? He commends him. He tips his hat to him because he acted shrewdly. He acted wisely in the given circumstances. I mean, do you understand the situation that the master was in? or that the manager put the master in? I mean, think about this. He had two choices right now. One, the master could go back and undo what the manager just did. He could go back to the guy who owed 450 gallons of olive oil and say, no, that guy was fired for being bad at his job. I don't know why he did that. It's time to pay up. And he could do that to the guy who owed bushels of wheat. But what would that do? That would not make them happy. That would probably make them take their business elsewhere. And he knew what the sly, shrewd manager just did for him. He just endeared two clients to him that were never going to take their business anywhere else, that were going out and telling everybody how generous and kind this rich man was. And so his hands were tied. What else could he do but go with what he had, eat the cost, and say touche to the guy who just did this to him? And even though he fired him, he still admired him. He said, well done. Well done, manager, because you had acted shrewdly. I told you all that we're talking about this parable because we're really going to zero in on the moral of this story, the point of it, right? But before we have to do that, there's something that needs to be addressed. And that's how in the world the manager got away with this. I mean, legally, he shouldn't have done it. He had already been fired. He had already been let go. How is it that the master just let him get away with this? Because he had every right to go and collect the debts that he had. to get away with it? The answer? The master was merciful. And the servant knew it. He knew that his essence, who his master was, was that he was merciful. And he banked on that. 
he banked on the fact that he was going to come through and be kind. And you think about that, that insight, that insight from this dishonest manager, it is perhaps the greatest insight that we can take away from this parable that he knew the solution to his problem was outside of himself. I'm going to say that again. He knew that it wasn't his ingenuity, it wasn't his shrewdness that would solve the day. No, that's probably what got him fired. But there was something outside of himself that was going to have to fix his problem. And that something was the mercy of his master, was the goodness that lied inside of him. At our church, we spend a lot of time talking about grace, God's undeserved love for sinners. You've often heard that grace is, well, just that. It is getting something that you do not deserve. It's getting God's love. This morning, let's talk about mercy, which mercy, when compared to grace, is a little different. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. If grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And what we see is that is the master, the ruler and the king, and the creator and savior that we have. We have a God who is merciful, and the entire narrative of scripture and our lives demonstrates his mercy over and over again. When Adam and Eve sinned, and all the world fell with it into sin, and he promised them that when they did that, they would die, what did he do? Axe them? Fire them? No. He sent a promise to them, a promise that someday, somewhere down the line, Someone would come and redeem all that they had messed up. They deserved death, but they got a promise of life. In real time, 2,000 years ago, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not to punish them, not to condemn them, but to save a lost world. And when his own people rejected him, when people even hurled insults to him while he was dying for their insults, what do you do? Call down thunder and lightning to strike them dead? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He didn't give to them or to us that which we deserve. The punishment for our sins is death. It's separation from God. And yet in our lives, God doesn't leave us to that. People who sin all of the time, who do things that people who knew us would be ashamed to know us if they knew what we did, our God comes after us. He fights to come for us, to give us his word, to give us people, pastors, friends, and family who love us, to call us back to his side and not give us a letter of condemnation, but to give us a letter of love, to give us his word and tell us that his mercy is more. He has invited us back into his heart to have everything that is his, his love, his hope, his forgiveness, none of the punishment that you and I deserve. And that's mercy. The light bulb went off for the dishonest manager and I pray the light bulb is starting to go off for you. The solution to all of your problems, 
is found outside yourself. It is found squarely in the mercy of Christ Jesus, who does not give us what we deserve. The solution to your biggest problem, eternal life or eternal death, is found in his mercy. And the solution to all of your problems, big and small, are found in him too. Because you want to know what the point of all this this story is about? It's about Christ's mercy. It's about how Christ's mercy changes everything in life. It changes your eternal life, and then it changes your life here on this earth. Opening up our worship this morning, we sung a hymn. We sung a hymn that goes like this. By his mercy, by his bounty, by the gift of Christ his Son, what great goodness he has shown us. What high marvels he has done. And just stop there. And what the hymn does is just say, stop and just stand in awe of what he has done for you in Christ Jesus. But then the hymn goes on and it says, let us to him promptly, freely give our bodies and our souls. Why? Because we're thankful that his love protects us, that his wisdom all controls. Do you see the point of this parable? It's not about the dishonesty of the manager. It's not about the misuse of Olive's possessions. What this parable is about at its core is the mercifulness of our God and Savior, the mercy of our master. That's when this parable starts to make sense. That's when we start to see why it is that this dishonest manager could do what he did because he understood who his master was. And so when the chips were down, when he had nothing left to his name, nothing left to give, he was able to go and live generously, courageously, freely, because he knew who held him in his hands. How much more you and I who aren't getting fired to go and live freely, to go and live generously, to go and live courageously, because you know who is holding you in his hand. It is a God, it is a master that isn't a slave driver, but he's merciful. He's full of love. That's what this parable is about. And that is why you listen to Jesus wrap up this story that is in so many ways money, about money and glory and power and transcend those small details, and apply this story to your life in this way. Here's what he says. Jesus says, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. So then when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Suits is a fascinating show because it is a show about a high-powered law firm that teaches people, surprisingly, about loyalty and friendship and selflessness. And here we have Jesus, (laughs) the Bible, going and surprisingly teaching us a lesson about shrewdness. But maybe we shouldn't be so surprised because Jesus' point is pretty clear. It's not about being shrewd. It's about what motivates your shrewdness. I mean, listen to the very simple, practical advice that comes from our Savior's mouth. He says, look, people of this world, 
they are motivated to be shrewd. But what motivates them? It's, it's money. He says, how much more shouldn't Christians be shrewd to act wisely, to act decisively, to act in, in thoughtful ways? And they're not motivated by money. They are motivated by what? Mercy. Mercy that changes everything. Jesus is not saying that, that money doesn't matter. Or it's not a big deal. No, he's saying, use earthly wealth. Have it. Use it. But use it why? Could Jesus say anything more practical than this? Use it to gain friends. Use your money to go and make friends. And why? Use the thing that, that so often gets abused by others for good. Use your money to invest it in people, in the thing that matters most. Because when it's all said and done, mercy changes everything, including the thing that matters most to people. And for Christians, well, it reminds us what matters most to Christ. It's you, it's me, and it's the entire world for whom our Savior died to go and make friends. Do you see what the Holy Spirit is doing with these words? He is reaching into the heart of Christians and he's saying, imagine, imagine what would happen if you used your money and you used your worldly wealth and you used all of the possessions you had with the same ingenuity, with the same intensity, with the same innovation, that the rest of the world uses money and worldly possessions in terms of business, in terms of politics, in terms of economics, in terms of like a law firm. How much more great would God use that if Christians went about their money with as much intensity, but for entirely different reasons? I mean, I think we could all admit we sweat some pretty small stuff in our lives. There isn't anybody here who's ever had doubts or questions or concerns or thought, how should I use my money in this situation? But have we thought about people and investments in people with that same amount of, of concern, the same amount of intensity, and the same amount of innovation to think, how can I best use what I have for, for someone else? So that, well, there's a place for them in heaven, and they invite me over when we're all there together to hang out. Jesus goes on. He said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy in someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? I don't know about you, but I want God to continue to entrust me and you with true riches. 
I want God to continue to look at the work that you and I do as individual Christians and collectively as a congregation and say, they've been honest, they've been faithful, I'm going to give them more true riches. What are true riches? It's the living, enduring word of God. It is the mysteries of God's mercy. It's the people. It's the people to whom that mercy and that message are directed to. I want our Savior, our Master, to continue to employ us to be faithful and wise stewards of everything he's given us. So how do we, how do we get that opportunity? He tells us. He says, use your money. Use your time. Use your possessions. And use it for eternal purposes. What does that look like here? If you read the rest of this chapter, you'll see there, there's a hundred different applications that we could make and, and deeply personal ones too for how we manage and, and think about our own money. But let's just make one collectively as a church. How are we using the money that, that's been given to us, that, that you all have given out of thanks and praise to your God. Well, you know that one of the things we've been talking a lot about is about buying a ministry center. And if you've been even paying half attention to this sermon, it's at this point you might stop and say, wait a second, you've been talking about using money for people. And now we're talking about spending lots of it for a building. Touche. That would be a good point. But think about it this way. Think about every, every brick that gets put into that building, every piece of flooring laid, every chair that's set up there permanently. <laughs> As an investment in someone who might notice it, who might notice that and then come to hear a message about the mysteries of God's mercy, that they are in fact employed by someone. And it, it is not culture, it is not the world, it is not their own insecurities, their inner voices that is telling them who they are and how they should live, but it is a master who controls their lives and owns their lives, but is so rich and so full of mercy who doesn't demand and command and isn't oppressive, but gives life and, and true life and allows them to live it in the full. My friends, so many of you have, have listened to this message from God's word before. As we've talked about it, as, as you've grown in your faith and you've taken what really is a challenge and you've accepted it. If it's something that you've never thought about before, I pray that, that this is what the Holy Spirit does to you through this, is challenge you to think about how you use your earthly means for eternal goods. And really, that's what this whole sermon series is about. We've been talking about a God-lived life, 
a life lived because we know that there's a God who lived for us, a life lived where we, we take every opportunity to hear his word, to live for others, to welcome strangers into our home. And finally, the, this piece can't, can't be left off, that we take a look at worldly things that we have and, and we think about how we can be shrewd, how we can be intense, how we can be innovative, how we can be really intentional with what he's given us so that maybe, maybe it's just one person. Maybe it's a whole lot more. But there's someone besides your savior who's in heaven because of you. And they just can't wait to invite you over and thank you for all the ways that God used you and your gifts so that they're in heaven forever. May God grant that for Jesus' sake. Amen.